Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. We continue to go into the movies this week. Uh, with Steven over there. Hello. And Rodrigo over there. Hello, friendo. Hey, we are talking No Country for Old Men. The funniest of the Coen Brother movies <laughs> I found it to be. <laughs> definitely um, definitely the last in the conversation. <laughs> and I told you, I mean, we watched a lot of, we watched a lot of comedies. We've yeah. seen most of the Coen Brother comedy stuff. But we haven't seen, like, Miller's Crossing, which is also very dead serious mm. and uh, intense. We never watched Blood Simple. But you do get to see an Oscar-winning No Country for Old Men, which is definitely not a, a comedy. No. It is about as opposite of a film. Well, not it, elements are similar, but tonally, this film is very different from what we watched a couple weeks ago. You know, Hudsucker Proxy and right. um, Hail Caesar and mm-hmm. uh, a long time ago, Big Lebowski is very different. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, No Country for Old Men is a story about a. I would. I don't, how would you describe Josh Brolin's character? He's this kind of cowboy type guy living in Texas that is somewhat. I wouldn't say he seems like he's necessarily a great person. I don't really get into what he well, does. Or so the question who he is, is. So the question is, for both of you. Oh, okay. If you're wandering out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and you stumble upon a drug deal that has gone wrong yeah, and everyone is dead, yet there are, you know, $10 million in a satchel, do you take that money? Uh, no. Why not? Uh, b- because I don't take dead people's money when they got killed in a giant firefight in the middle of nowhere because yeah, no, one's gonna, no one's gonna know right? oh yeah because this movie proved us no one well there's know. a problem with this is the problem with with what happened to josh brolin the question is yeah. do you take the money no i'm getting far away from that situation as possible okay rodrigo what about you oh definitely not how I come mean, not even not even a little bit no uh well, because it's a crime scene, and all I would need is for them to find my fingerprints on anything, and mm. then they'd be like, well, it's like, this guy is not connected to anything, but he is Mexican, so <laughs> let's so, just throw him in jail with all the well, other ones. The fingerprint thing is interesting, because in the situation of Josh Brolin's character rolling up on this situation that we have described of a drug deal gone bad with mm-hmm. $2 million in a satchel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought... Brolin is like, oh, he's this guy out hunting some antelope, you know. I thought, hey, maybe this guy is like a police dude, and he's and he seems very trained with weapons. Right. He notices what's happening. He approaches very cautiously, like someone who's been trained. But then he just starts touching everything. I was like, oh, what are you doing? You are contaminating this crap. So first of all, <laughs> it's 1980. Well, right, sure. So right. forensic sciences, I mean, they have. But you don't know it's 1980 yet. Um, okay, well, I didn't know it was 1980. Okay. 
So it's it's before you know CSI is going to pop in and go, oh hey, we know exactly that sure. it was uh, Zach that stole this money. Um, so it's 1980. You have a very different economy, especially in West Texas. You have a very different economy going on. Uh, a lot of depression going on at that point, uh, unless you're involved in the oil field. Josh Brolin is not involved in any kind of oil field work. He's a welder, right? Oh, right, yeah. So he's just back from Vietnam, uh, maybe, what, eight years back from Vietnam. So that's where you're saying he's got all this hunting and tracking mm-hmm. skills, right? Knows how to use a weapon. Uh, and, uh, you know, he sees $2 million. He knows that this is a drug bust gone wrong. If the feds are looking at it, they're just going to say, yeah, this is a drug bust gone wrong. And someone took the money that's involved with the with this drug. So from his mind point, from his standpoint, it's just – I might as well take this money because it's not going to do anybody else any good. And it, the only place it's going to sit is in a government holding uh, box mm-hmm. until this thing ever goes to trial, which it never will. So the money will just sit there forever. And so he's like, well, why not take it? Right. Problem becomes, though, with his plan is he does come across someone who is still partially alive, who's begging him for water. Mm-hmm. And he says, nope, sorry, I'm not going to help you out and wanders off. The problem comes is that he's got a conscience, conscience, and he goes back at night to give this guy water, and that's when the drug cartel or whoever shows up and crap goes down, and then they get on his, his trail. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, his biggest fault is that he was, he was empathetic to someone who needed water. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's what got him into the biggest trouble, because had he walked away with all that money, never went back... He would have been two million two million dollars richer. Well, the money still had that tracker, though. It did have that. That is true. It might have take, just taken that Taking guy him a, a lot, little, little bit, bit longer, longer to find him. Yeah, right. So Josh Brolin's character finds his money as a conscious, which is back. which is the second thing is if I did take the money, I would be examining it super carefully to make sure that there was nothing in there that could be traced. I would take the money out of the box, <laughs> out of the suitcase, and put it in a duffel bag. Mm. Well, you know. Not everyone can be a, a criminal mastermind like you, Well, it's Steven. not criminal. It's just, hey, it's found money. <laughs> I, an opportunist mindset yeah, like you. Taking an, taking uh, control of an opportunity. Yeah, so like, uh, like Steven said, Josh Brolin's character rolls back to the scene. He gets in some trouble as some people show up, start chasing him through the Texas backlands, ends up getting shot, rolling down a river. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a million plot lines in this uh, movie, it felt like at times, where I could probably just talk about Josh Brolin's <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. one stream for the mm-hmm. entire thing. Um, but there's a very important other person in well, this story who shows up. People. Oh, yeah, there's a couple, uh, which is our big, bad uh, sugar guy mm-hmm. who um, is the person, I think if you've only tangentially heard of No Country for Old Men or it's probably just seen little bits and pieces of it through trailers or when it was at the Oscars or anything, you were a member because it's a very iconic look from um, Javier Bardem mm-hmm. with with this. I don't even know what to describe his haircut. Friends Valiant, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> um, and him carrying this compressed air, mm-hmm. not gun type thing, which is like this character that I instantly recognized um, just from barely knowing about this film. I think right. he's a very iconic now uh, evil person in mm-hmm. film history. Mm-hmm. Who is he's hired by someone on some side of this drug deal to kind of hunt down this money, and that's how he intersects with Josh Brolin's 
right. character. Right. And he is a nonstop. He's nonstop, right? I mean, he does it until the job is done. Yeah. yeah. He really has. And, and really, this movie kind of boils down to um, looking and examining the ethics of the various characters. Uh, and for for Sugar, his is. If he's set on a task and he makes a promise to someone or, you know, makes a guarantee of some kind, he's going to carry that through. Right. Uh, we see yep. that especially at the end when he's talking to uh, Josh Brolin's character and basically is like, hey, give me the money. I'll let your wife live. I don't get the money. I'm going to kill your wife. And we find out at the end that because he didn't get the money back, he's still going to go and kill Josh Brolin's wife no mm-hmm. matter what. And just because that is his his ethical code that he has set up for himself. We kind of get that uh, and we get that ex- explanation, at least from uh, Sugar's ethics code from um, Woody Harrelson's character. Who comes in to help track down the money? I guess too, from a different standpoint, he doesn't make it through the whole movie. But um, well, his from my point of view, watching this, Woody Harrelson's job—it seemed to me it was like almost to stop Sugar from I, just killing well, everyone in the planet or well, something. His, <laughs> he's 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 hired to retrieve the money from Sugar. Okay, because Sugar's just gonna because that's run my off with it. that's my thought um, about Sugar's character Rodrigo is that what his ethic code is because it seems to he is trying to carry out this deal of finding the money, but he also kills everyone who's hired him in the course of this film to yeah. do that, which is an interesting like if that's his only reason is to retrieve the money for these people, why does he kill all three people? That he's essentially working for. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, it is just kind of, I think more so than him being this like methodical, like I need to to finish this. It does. It is more of like an obsess, more of an obsession, right? It's like now he's on this. He's like a dog with a bone Mm -hmm. um, and he's going to carry it out. And everything that kind of like comes up and is a problem is just like this huge annoyance for him. So it's like even when his own employers start kind of getting obnoxious, he just kills them. Mm -hmm. That was that was my read on the character. And so at the end, when he goes back and and goes after the wife, I thought that was kind of like, I mean, I thought that was spite. You know, he like really tries to seem detached, but he's not. You can Mm -hmm. see that he like he's angry, like things get to him um, because all it takes is for somebody to annoy him for them to for him to kill them. What's interesting, though, and I I wish and I don't know if it plays it up in the book, which is what this movie is based on. Mm -hmm. But he has this. uh interaction with a um, gas station attendant right mm-hmm. who really gets on his nerves and then he does this coin thing where it's like well how much is your you know what do you want to bet on this and the implication is if the clerk had not guessed the correct side of the coin mm-hmm. he would have been killed mm-hmm. personally if you're trying to build up a a villain that has maybe a, a gimmick I mean, we already saw it with the uh, the bolt gun mm-hmm I, I kind of was expecting that that coin to show up at least once more in the movie. And he does it at the very end with mm-hmm. the wife, mm-hmm. but it's almost like it needed to be there one more time. Yeah. Yeah, I re- no, definitely. I, I read um, an article from, it wasn't from Roger Ebert, it's someone who wrote for his site. Mm-hmm. And in his looking at the film, he thinks there is another moment where he does the coin flip when 
Tommy Lee Jones's character, who is a sheriff in this film, who is kind of trailing this whole right. mm-hmm. just like bloodshed process through mm-hmm. through Texas. Of um, we get to a uh, one of the the crime scene in the hotel. Spoilers: Josh Brolin's dead. He just he gets he gets uh, straight up psychoed out of this movie, and you follow this main character the entire time, and then he's just gone. It, I literally was watching. I was like, "Did they just psycho this movie?" Yeah. Like we were following him the entire time. Anyway, so we search up at this uh, thing, and I'm like, Joseph's character is on one side of the door, and he sees the bolt was blown out of the door, mm-hmm. which was Sugar's thing of uh, with his little gun, right? And he's on the other side, and he's just waiting. Um, and then when finally the sheriff walks in, he's he's gone, he's not there, and he sees the a coin on. The ground. Oh, okay. I and thought some, that he was just. I thought that was. Yeah. Um, to pry the thing open. Yeah, I thought that was Josh uh, Brolin's character. Yeah. Because he'd done something similar to that earlier in the movie, where yeah. he was doing the coin to undo the grate yeah. to hide the money in the hotel wall. And the, the, the way he was reading it was, he flipped the coin to decide if he was actually going to kill the sheriff or not, mm. and then he did. And without him calling it, I guess he just decided what it was going to be in his mind. Mm. It landed in the sheriff's favor, and he left. Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I mean, it's a it's a valid read, certainly. But uh, we had seen him use a coin to open the grate before. Mm-hmm. He knew what uh, Llewellyn's mo was, yeah. and he seemed a little fixated on them calling it as evidenced mm-hmm. by that last scene, right? Right, and actually by the first scene where we see the coin. So that it, that that seems difficult for me to be like. Um, especially because I think it was a penny too. I don't think it was a yeah, quarter. It was like yeah. a dime. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it could be swapping out different coins because he did tell the, um, the gas station attendant to keep it. It's the most, you know, important coin in his life and mm-hmm. not to put it in with the rest of the coins. It's super lucky. Yeah. And I think when I was watching no country old men, that gas station scene seemed out of place at first until you've kind of watched the entirety of the film and mm-hmm. figured out more of sugar characters, just what how he operates because in that sequence he tells this unassuming nice kind of country guy right. that his whole life has led to this moment it's mm-hmm. like you this is the biggest wager you've made and you've been making it his entire life it, and it seemed to implica- imp- uh, implicate this kid the guy in you've lived your entire life in this annoying fashion right and just by like being like just jovial, by yeah, just yeah. by being and working this tiny little gas station that you've married into, mm-hmm. you've now landed at this spot where you get to decide if you live or die with a coin flip. Mm-hmm. Which is like, so it seems like Sugar's character is like everyone deserves what they're getting into because their entire life has led to the moment of if I'm going to kill so you. So your or not. entire actions have led to. Your fate. That's what. That's where I think his point of view is. Well, so he, and I think he like gets out of maybe potentially feeling bad about killing anyone. Uh, that's, I mean, that's interesting, but we also learn from the opening monologue from Tommy Lee Jones character, Sh- uh, Sheriff Bell, mm-hmm. that there is also, he's also making those connections, right? Uh, there's a point in the beginning of the opening monologue where he's like, you know, back in the day, sheriffs didn't have to carry guns or there were some old timers that never have to carry guns. Mm-hmm. Now we have to carry guns and this is the way things are and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, we get to the end of the movie you know, and that's a it's an odd opening statement because apparently in the book, every chapter has a story from Sheriff Bell mm. and then it's count contradicted or or 
um, explained further by the actions of the characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't get that here. We kind of do a little bit, but but it, it doesn't really play out as much. But in, in the case, he's setting it up that, hey, this is what happens to people that are unassuming. Uh, this is what happens to people that go through life without kind of a plan. Um, this is really kind of a country for no for, for old men. It's not a place for old men who think that they can go around without guns. He gets to the end of the movie where he's talking to his, I'm guessing it's a uncle his or brother, I thought it's somebody. Um, but he's asking questions about his father uh, who had died in a gunshot. Mm-hmm. And so his uh, in, a, in a gun shootout. And so the uncle or whoever is recounting, you know, this is what happened to your dad. Are you going to fall into this same fate? Is this what what you're leading up to? But of course, at this point, uh, Sheriff Bell has decided to retire. He doesn't want to be part of this anymore because he knows that if he continues to follow this path, his path is going to end up just like his father's and many other um, uh, police officers before him. So, yeah, I can kind of see your read on that. Yeah, the. You know, we talk a lot about the Coen's similarities in other film, and this definitely, I mean, this follows a pattern of opening up with a monologue, and it actually felt a lot like Raising Arizona, mm-hmm. which we watched last week, in that it is this opening monologue over top uh, shots of, you know, like Backlands. Last last week it was Arizona, this thing mm-hmm. sticks Texas, of, you know, kind of setting the the scenery or at least a backdrop for the film, which are, are very similar. And even uh, I saw some people drawing comparisons of um, Llewellyn's life with his wife in the trailer mm-hmm. to, you know, our characters mm-hmm. from Raising Arizona. And they kind of mirror each other in a, in a somewhat similar fashion, even though they uh, are kind of different couples in general. Uh, Rodrigo, what, you know, what, you know, we we follow three different characters here, and it seems like Sheriff Bell is always three steps behind this, and yeah. we're like have almost have to relive everything again through this character. What does that add to the story here? Well, they're just uh, showing you that he's a lot a lot older than back when he was chasing uh, Harrison Ford across the country. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, I think it's. It's interesting to see um, that old uh, sheriff uh, perspective and him being behind because in the end, he's the the titular old man, right? It's like he's just a little bit too far behind, a little bit too slow, a little bit too um, good, really, too mm-hmm. good of a person to to really take that to, to, to catch up to these other two young brash men. Do you, um, that's interesting. Do you really think that he's slow? Because I kind of read it as he knows what's going on. He doesn't have to go out and do these things. He's just waiting to see, you know, he's basically saying how, how little involved, how involved do I need to be in this, in this crime scene? I mean, I think there's, um, Really, that's the. So I think there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is kind of character stuff and simultaneously supposed to like throw you. Mm-hmm. Like uh, basically, that's what uh, the, that Wendell character is there for. He's like, "Well, sheriff, should we do this?" And the mm-hmm. sheriff's like, "Why would we do that? Right. We already have all the information we have." Mm-hmm. Um, 
a, a very similar relationship to uh, the the deputies from Fargo and uh, Margie, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it, so it's not it's not a it's not a slowness of like thinking or or anything like that. I I, I don't think he's either he's reluctant to help. He's just coming at it not as a cop, not as a not as like a relentless. Um, you know, kind of a truth and justice type guy. He wants to help that family. He's going in trying to get uh, Josh Brolin's character out of it, right? right he's right. contacting his wife. This is someone he knows. He's trying to be like, well, you know, if he contacts you, tell him not to do anything stupid kind of stuff. And that angle is what prevents him from getting there, right? No country mm-hmm. for old men. He can't by that old... Um, by the old ways, by this uh, taking care of people and, and, and being part of a community, it doesn't work in the fast-paced future world of 1980. Right, right. <laughs> well, I've, it's interesting because at the end of the movie, Bell shares two dreams with his wife. Uh, and the one that's more prophetic, there's one where he has a dream where he lost um, some money that his father gave him. Okay, that's fine. The second one, though, is that he's riding with his father and his father's got like a... Um, a fire and a horn, which I don't know if that was common in the West, that that's how you kept your fire going or if this was a Viking illusion or what. But his father goes on ahead of him into the snowy mountain pass to start a fire and wait for him to come. I'm not sure. I, you know, he he's finally opening up to his wife about things that are going on. I don't know if he's had these dreams after the events of these things that have happened. Or if he's just recounting dreams that he has had, because if he's had this prophetic dream before he starts on this this chase uh, to get the money back or to try to get Josh Brolin, uh, Llewellyn Moss's character out of trouble, maybe that's another reason why he doesn't want to get involved in it, because he knows that death is waiting for him. And he doesn't want any part of this. And he's trying to say, well, you know, if I just if we don't have to go back out into the desert and, and look at this crime scene, then that's one less thing that I have to do. One less chance that I'm going to be in danger. One less chance where I'm going to take a bullet and die. And, and maybe that's a different read. How I, I how I uh, came up with this, but is that, well, I de- think of that. I definitely think there is something to his character of the understanding of the nature of what his job is mm-hmm. and the serious things that can happen to his person from being that and that his father was a sheriff and they were sheriffs at the same time when mm-hmm. uh you know he was sheriff back when he was in that town and his dad was back in like Plano and they were sheriff at the same time and his and he even states somewhere in the film beginning or yeah. towards the middle that the he's beginning. lived you know 20 years more than his dad has. Mm-hmm. And so there's an understanding of one, uh, you know, we all die eventually right. at least. And two, I am in a, I do a job where I have probably a higher likelihood, or at least putting myself mm-hmm. in a position where I could end up like everyone else, but earlier than everyone else because of right. what I do. Right. And there is probably, you know, he rides a horse. Like, mm-hmm. there's probably no reason to right. have to ride a horse to that crime scene because other people are taking trucks and things. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's an advantage, but he is hearkening back to this time when sheriffs rode horses into town mm-hmm. instead of uh, probably a very convenient four-wheel drive yeah. truck. Yeah. Plus, they can also track the track Yeah, the like, saying, like and, there is the probably a right. reason. He is a, he's a very outdated sheriff. Yeah. I mean, and he really, 
he pulls his gun when he walks in that hotel room and mm-hmm. never really, maybe, he'd even pull his gun when they went into uh, the Wellens' trailer. Right. And so he made his young deputy go in for him. Because mm-hmm. he's, a, he at least, if he has an understanding that I'm probably not cut out for this, especially if a guy is able to kill someone without a bullet mm-hmm. in the brain, which kind of confuses him. And uh, that it had to be somewhat terrifying to know that this is the guy we're trying to capture. Right, right. I, was, I mean, so his character is very interesting because, especially when uh, Llewellyn, Josh Brolin, gets killed by the cartel. Right. Uh, I don't know, two thirds of the way through this movie, we switch to you know the sheriff, and, and it's really abrupt too. I mean, this is probably uh, one of the most abrupt, well, yeah. abrupt things that you see in a movie because you have been following Josh Brolin for most of this. He is on the run. He has sent his wife away. He's being chased by Sugar. He's being chased by the cartel, um, and the cartel does show up multiple times in this movie. In a truck form, uh, waiting outside the hotel. He escapes from them the first time at the one hotel as he moves to the other. He's literally a man that's being hunted. He's the cat to the mm-hmm. – uh, he's the mouse to the to the sugar's cat. Um, and then he goes to another hotel. There's a woman who's tempting him there with uh, some beer, and he's like, no, I'm married. Uh, you know, drinking's going to lead to trouble. Then we smash cut to Tommy G- Lee Jones's character driving up um, to meet with Josh Brolin. And suddenly the cartel's tearing out of there and everyone's dead, mm-hmm. including including Brolin's character. And it's like, what happened? Because uh, we've seen all of these other fights. We've seen uh, Brolin and Sugar shoot it out in the streets and in a hotel, uh, in different parts in the movie. So it's like, wow, why didn't we get that part of the movie mm-hmm. or that part of the story? And it really doesn't matter, I don't think. But it is such a jolt, such a jolt uh, that... Something feels out of place. Mm-hmm. Now, why they may have done it, I I don't know. But in uh, classical music, I forget. I think it's maybe in your your third movement or your uh, of, of your piece in your final movement of piece. In in uh, and I forget who it was, Beethoven perhaps. Uh, in that time, you started the that that movement with a really big bang, uh, so that it would wake the audience up in case they had started to fall asleep, so they could get into that. That's kind of what this felt like. It was this big jarring moment where you're like, what's going on? What happened? Huh? What did I fall asleep? Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're highly focused into the last part of the, of the movie from that point. So I don't know if that's why they did it, but I just found it super abrupt and, and really strange. Yeah, it was an interesting move. I don't say it's a bad move. I don't say it's a good move, but it was essentially, it was really interesting to me because, you know, it would have been what it looked to be uh, one of the most fast-paced fights of mm-hmm. the entire film, Arrigo, because we mm-hmm. just finished right before this with a very long sequence of Sugar and Llewellyn shooting at each other like once every three minutes in a shootout that ranged from a hotel all the way down to a street that was very quiet for the most part and long and drawn out and very suspenseful. And right. from the aftermath of this uh, shooting where Lillowen dies, it, it seemed very bloody and a lot of people died very fast, which is not kind of the tempo this film had going for it at that point. Yeah, it it was really strange for that to happen all of a sudden and confusing. And like, honestly, the first thing I thought of is like, oh, it's like watching No Country for Old Men is like having No Country for Old Men narrated by your dad. Mm-hmm. 
it's like if he's telling you the plot of like you know uh, this like uh everybody's dad you know it's like mm -hmm. it's, it's like there's like the parts that he's into he's like okay so he's out there and he's got this like really cool gun and he's like i'm gonna get you antelope i'm gonna get you antelope i'm gonna get you antelope and then like stuff happens and the guy and he's got like the stun uh air gun thing and he's like doing things and then like at the end it's like so anyway at some point uh just Brolin's characters gets killed and um then uh sugar gets into a car accident and either before or after that he kills the wife and then tommy lee jones has the speech and it was a great speech let me tell you word for word <laughs> like yeah you know it's like that's what it feels like it feels like we is like the omniscient narrator the uns that unspoken narrator is like tired of this movie all mm -hmm. of a sudden they're mm -hmm. like I, actually this uh, you know what this wasn't even the plot that i meant to follow i don't know what we've been spending so much time on josh brown's character this is about the old man let's get back to him <laughs> you know as like it, it was it was just like very jarring and honestly it took me entirely out of the movie this isn't this movie really wasn't my cup of tea to begin with uh, but I was following it along, and this then this happens, and I'm like, it really felt actually kind of like a vindication for how I felt about it. I'm like, throughout the whole movie, it was interesting. That fight scene, very suspenseful. Uh, Javier Bardem does a good job, uh, does a great job. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of mildly bored throughout all of it. You know, yeah. it's slow, and mm -hmm. I don't really relate to most of these characters. And then to have the movie be like, yeah, all right, whatever. Anyway, next scene. Uh, was kind of like, oh, well, I don't feel so bad now. Yeah, from that moment on, the movie felt different to me, and I don't know how to explain it, besides the fact that you had invested so much time in Lewin's character, and then he was gone, and the movie really played out in, and I guess not an unpredictable fashion, and maybe a predictable fashion until the ending of, you know, Sugar's Crash and then the sheriff just recounting these dreams and then you get the credits where, if you know, we talk a lot about genre stuff with the Coens and this seems in part a lot like their take on a Western with these wide expansive shots and you have a sheriff and he's kind of being all existential about everything and this other guy and this new dude who is definitely not using a gun that would have been using a western yeah, yeah um and then you get a very anticlimactic ending where the bad guy isn't dead he's still out there with a bone sticking out of his elbow but he's probably gonna live because he's lived through a lot already in this movie and the good guy who's left in the film's like i'm done it's too much end of movie which is like the opposite of any john wayne movie where john wayne rides off in the sunset after killing everyone and saying something racist mm -hmm. that is those movies and this is the opposite but it worked in a weird way but in a way where i wasn't expecting the movie to end there and i was kind of just drifting in and out of Tommy Lee jones you know really mm -hmm. underselling these dreams and then it's like oh it's over oh i gotta rewind and listen to that it was probably really important do you get the sense that um, Sugar's fate suddenly is becoming that of uh, Llewellyn's fate? Because in this case, um, Llewellyn is all shot up. And one of the last things that he can think of doing so that he doesn't get killed in the hospital at uh, in the United States is to 
buy some clothing off some kids that are coming across the border, slipping into Mexico Mm -hmm. and getting set up into a hospital there, which no one would have any record of. And so it would be impossible for him to trace. We see almost that exact same thing play out here with Sugar in that he gets in a car wreck, unintended car wreck, and he's paying off a kid to to get his clothing. And then he's wandering off with the sirens playing in the background. Is he going to end up in that same fate? Is he just now become instead of the the hunter, he is becoming the hunted in in this in this, uh, you know, final fate out of the movie? Um, I, possibly, but by whom? I mean, well, it would he, be the police. The in only this people case. that are like following him is like, but the only cop we see is Tommy Lee Jones, and True. he's like giving up on it, right? But there are other police officers. There are. I mean, it is a it is a parallel, mm-hmm. but man, it's just like honestly, it's like I kind of feel like we went into this movie and they were like, we're just. We would just like to avoid like a big Hollywood ending where there's just like a shootout and everybody dies or the good guys win or whatever. And it's Mm -hmm. like instead we get this like kind of like half hearted like the bad guy kind of gets what's coming through him by divine retribution Mm -hmm. by just kind of being in a car accident. Um, And then... The main guy, like the, the the cop that says, I'm getting old for this, actually gets to retire. <laughs> yeah. It, well, uh, this and this is where I think that it'd be interesting to uh, read the book, because yeah. uh, from all the accounts that I'm seeing is that this is the most faithful adaptation you're ever going to see of a movie turned uh, a book turned into a movie with two major changes in the, in uh, in the movie. The first one is that the novel is clearly um Bell telling telling the story, as I mentioned before, where he has a little opening bit at the beginning of every chapter. And then the second one is the encounter with the gas station attendant. Um, And there was just a a little change there in that in the movie, it's bright day outside. But in the novel, it is literally close to dark time, the time for this guy to be closing up shop. Those are the only differences. So this makes me really go. What's going on with this novel if this is how it ends, where we lose Llewellyn's character in chapter 10 and then the final five chapters are just just kind of peter out into nothingness? And why is this novel? I mean, the novel's controversial and some critics really love it and some critics say, well, this is not really a great a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, but then for this to turn into a big Academy Award winning uh, movie uh, on so many different levels is is kind of baffling. So, yeah. I, I, so if any of our listeners, I guess, have read the book and watched the movie, you know, how close is this? Is there is there something that we're missing here in this ending, or is it just like, hey, old people, you know, go sit on your porches and rock in your chairs and let the young kids deal with this uh, this new world? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a lot about this movie that is great and mostly it's kind of a lot of individual things there's obviously some real artistry to the way the movie's Mm -hmm. put together um i would urge everyone if they're going to watch it again to pay attention to windows and reflections of windows yeah Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of that and you can draw a lot of uh a lot of reads from what that from what that means um, I think that uh, Sugar is, or you know, Javier Bardem's character here is a much better Bond villain than mm-hmm. his character yeah. from, um, oh, which one was it? The James, the actual Skyfall. James Bond movie. Yeah, yeah from Skyfall. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, that, so. that's what I was thinking too. He really is a good Bond villain here. Uh-huh. I wish he could have done that in the actual Bond movie that he was the villain. <laughs> and, and he does a good job in that too. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, I think Josh Brolin's character is easy to uh, get into because he has very little personality and you know very little about him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know... Uh, there's a lot of twists and turns. Like I, I think you know, if you're if you're watching this movie, um, in the same way that a lot of like, t- actually a lot of Cohen films is like, you don't know where this movie's gonna go, right. Mm-hmm. right? And that's that's what drives you to keep watching. But sometimes when you take a step back, you're like, well, we didn't know where it was gonna go, and it was kind of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where it went. Whereas, like Fargo has this very enclosed, both you know, Fargo, Hudsucker Proxy, uh, um, uh, Big Lebowski. They have these like very kind of closed, circular, satisfying endings, um, where there's like comeuppance of some kind for one character or another. Mm-hmm. It's like this one is just like left wide open, right? Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, my own expectations going into a movie where it's like I enjoyed a lot of like the textural aspects of the movie, but the plot of it kind of left me cold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking, well, you know, Burn After Reading. I, did you see that one, Rodrigo? I haven't yet. No, that one also kind of has a if I remember correctly, because it's been several years since I since I watched it. That one also seemed to have a kind of a weird that's it kind of ending. And Hail yeah. Caesar is also kind of that way, too. It's just, oh, so this was just time for another day of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they kind of dig on on that a little bit. Well, yeah. I feel like Hail Caesar was a little bit more closed-ended than this, where it does have like, okay, we're on to something new, right. and it's like done, that chapter's done, we're right, on to right. something new. This one is, we're on to something new? Yeah. Or are we... You guys, you guys, uh, I'm pretty sure you guys have seen Red State, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Did we do Red State for Zach on film? No, uh, I don't I think, think so, but we, we certainly talked a, talked a lot about it. Yeah, so you guys have seen Red State, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Did you guys like Red State? It, it's the, when you're talking about an odd ending, it, it also has that, yeah. that odd ending. So, I mean, it's, it's so, a fascinating way, I mean, by itself, it's right. an interesting film of a shootout that is not the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it but that end with the horn and then everyone's like, well, there's your gag. There's, you know, there's this gag at the end that mm-hmm. kind of resolves everything is, is you're right. It's kind of the same way. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, uh, Kevin Smith, uh, basically it was Smith, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he basically admitted and, and not that there's like a big admission like, haha, we caught him or whatever. He's, you know, he said, he's like, I was writing this movie and at the moment that I thought, what would be the next thing? I'm going to do something else. So the movie has this like weird plot that kind of zigzags around. It's like, is it about a bunch of kids? No, it's about this church. No, it's about the shootout. No, it's about this guy. Well, actually, it's about this other guy that knows this guy, you know? And uh, weirdly, that's kind of how this movie felt. Like a lot of the times I had a lot of like kind of like little flashbacks to Red State. I don't know exactly what it was, but I think it was that kind of like unfocused who's the main character kind of thing um, because it's like, okay, now we're kind of looking at uh, Woody Harrelson's character. Mm-hmm. Psych. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's actually not that important, which is fine. Actually, I think that was the strongest psych of the whole movie in a movie that is kind of full of like little, like, Oh, now there's going to be a shootout between the old sheriff and the monster. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Nope, actually they never actually are in the same room or for more than a second. Yeah. 
Um, I thought the Woody Harrison one was actually the strongest one where it's like, okay, here comes this white hat. He's going to come in. Mm -hmm. He's going to face off against the guy. Uh, but it's like, he doesn't even get a shot in. Right. It's just gone. Yeah. Yeah. That is an interesting comparison back to red state because that movie does zigzag around in this one zigs around with its characters in a way that red state doesn't where we are just jumping back and forth to, um, a different character's perspective because really if you took out like two Josh, Josh Brolin heavy scenes and inserted Javier Bardem's character in there in two scenes, like it becomes way more focused on that character than any other character in the film, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is an interesting look because it is a character that we only really explore through other characters, mainly Woody Harrelson's explanation of who right. this person is right. Right. that makes him interesting and kind of gets you out of, well, I guess I'm trying to think we, we'd learn about um, Llewellyn a lot from him being with his wife, but uh, Tommy Lee Jones, the sheriff talks a lot about, his backstory before we really get it from him as well. So mm-hmm. there are all these, all these characters explaining other characters, backgrounds and motives and, and how they work, which does kind of give it a sense that it is jumping around mm-hmm. in a bit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing with like your creepy silent characters is that you have to bring in someone else yeah. to explain them. Cause they're very rarely going to sit down and do the uh, punisher thing from daredevil. Right. Where they're like, <laughs> right, right. Oh, let me tell you my story. And like pull out a, a guitar and be like, Oh, it was 20 years ago that my wife got shot by some gangsters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's very rare. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically what that character was there for, is to be like, here's this guy's deal. Ah, shotgun. Right. <laughs> right. And that was something that surprised me with this film in... The Coen brothers generally write a lot of dialogue where there's not a whole lot of silence in any of their films, mm. but this film definitely has more silence than talking in yeah, general. I think I think you yeah. need to watch True Grit because it's also got a lot of silence and that, that whole sense of the West at least from their standpoint is that this is a vast empty space mm-hmm. and it's not full of noisy stuff that you find in the city. So I think that's that's a contrast that you see why there's a lot of that quiet moments in this. And Fargo is kind of the same way. Fargo doesn't have as much big silent parts mm-hmm. but there's a lot of silent parts in Fargo too. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we've By talked. The way, to, yep. uh, you know that uh, the wife is actually the voice of uh, Merida from Brave. Oh, cool. Huh. Uh, also, the uh, the, the deputy um, Gillahunt um, mm-hmm. is uh, the guy who in Deadwood shot um, while Bill Hickok. Yeah, oh. Garrett Dillahunt is actually all over the place, and mm-hmm. he yeah. tends to do these like secondary characters. I actually know him from Raising Hope. It's a yeah. comedy, yes. and yeah. he actually does a great job. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a great actor. We've talked about accents on pretty much every episode. So about the Coens, um, what what was the accent in this film that was kind of pushed? It didn't seem like really anything was pushed too much. Besides, maybe Llewellyn's wife had an accent. But everyone else seemed fairly naturalistic, at least in my hearing of it. Did I yeah. miss on a character? Yeah, I think, interestingly, you know, there's like a lot of Texas-type draws. And then 
uh, this very out of place accent from Javier Bardem, but mm-hmm. it's it's under control. Like he's not, you know. It's like a lot of the times the way you emphasize accents is by giving them a phrase, giving you know the character yeah. a phrase that either doesn't work in that uh, or is like it's like very striking. And other than calling a guy friendo, mm-hmm. which seems like him trying more to do an, a Texas <laughs> thing than anything else. Um, I thought it was like really, really kind of under control. You never know where he comes from, what country he's from or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that, you know, most characters' accents were under control. Interestingly, I think Kelly McDonald is actually uh, Scottish. Like, I think she's actually Scottish. Oh. So um, that might be why her accent was the most <laughs> uh, the most obvious one. It's because she was probably faking it the hardest. Yeah. Yep, yep. And uh, in, in, just continue back on trends from the Coen Brothers films, I thought... The cinematography in No Country for Old Men was probably the strongest of the f- four or five films that we've watched sure. now, maybe rivaled by Fargo. Mm-hmm. But this was a very pretty movie and shot incredibly well. It was um, nominated for Academy Award for mm-hmm. Best Cinematography. Didn't win, but it was nominated for Best Cinematography. Won that year. I don't know. What year was this? 2008? Something like that? 2007. Oh. I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that came out that year. Um, but what did you think about the cinematography, Rodrigo? I, I thought it was uh, like I thought it was fantastic. Honestly, um, there is, like you said, there, this is a really quiet movie, so mm-hmm. all of that tension is built through, you know, angles and shots and movement. Um, there's also a real kind of poetry to this movie everything that's not said by the characters is kind of said by the visuals you know it's like you have characters who you know you have this kind of thing where Llewellyn will be someplace then Sugar will be someplace then the sheriff will get to that place Mm -hmm. so you see all three characters there and the shots are slightly different it shows you you know a man on the run then this kind of like larger than life monster who's after him then a uh, this kind of uh, old dog chasing after them. Um, and I think that's like really greatly accomplished both by kind of like the scene pacing because I, I felt like the scenes with Tommy Lee Jones were like a little longer, a little let, let them breathe a little bit more, um, but also by just the shots. There was a lot of people framed in doorways mm-hmm. in this film. Yeah. Doorways and windows. Before. Yeah. Right? We've seen that in, again, if we're thinking Western, right, we saw that in The Searchers, uh, where John Wayne is framed in the doorway, beginning mm-hmm. and end of the film, throughout the film, um, in, in many different places. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, and looking at Which, that, John Wayne is the hero in that film. Sure. But this one, we have a lot of... Uh, Sugar's character, yeah, yeah, anti-hero framed up bigger. So what do you think the implication is that is that this is a person that is above everyone else in con in context actually? Well, we've we there's two things that go that are going on here from from that perspective. If you remember, we kind of had this discussion with the searchers is that when you're dealing with the west and you've got these big horizontal mm-hmm. horizons, mm-hmm. right? 
the way to offset that is with big verticals. So if you frame someone in a doorway, suddenly they become bigger than their environment. Uh, the only place where this really becomes odd is when we get into, I'm guessing it's Dallas, uh, when we're meeting with Stephen Root's uh, character, mm. uh, also appearing in many of the Coen Brothers movies, um, where we're looking up to these big, giant buildings in Dallas or Fort Worth or wherever this is taking place. And so suddenly we, the characters become minuscule in this greater world of of everything. But mm -hmm. out in the West, they can become and rise above and become these big epic characters in this Western story that they're telling. But when they get inside the city, they become diminutive. They become smaller than, than, mm -hmm. than what they really are. Yeah, I read the, um, I read all the framing because, um, and, and I just put it all together, right? The framing at the doorways, the, uh, reflection on the TV, their silhouettes against the window, it, uh, that it's, they're in a box, they're mm -hmm. trapped. Mm -hmm. They can't like, Llewellyn's moving forward. This guy's after him. The sheriff's after them, and they can't get out of the situation. Um, but I don't know how good of a reading that is because I was kind of developing as I was watching it, and then they do. Llewellyn gets killed. The other guy gets in a car wreck, and the sheriff gives up. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe that's how the thing is broken. Um, I don't. I don't remember a, a stylistic thing that supports both my theory and is like the breaking point. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, except maybe like a lady at a pool. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how strong that uh, reading that is. Yeah. So uh, your question, best cinematography, yeah. uh, went to the other semi-Western that came out there that year, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, which is another great another film. Another great film. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. Of course, I have to watch it again because the first time I watched that, it was playing somewhat in the, the background while I was working. While you were making out so with somebody. Great, well, I was at work. So no. Doesn't mean you were making out, out with somebody. somebody at work. That's very unprofessional. Well, tonight. yeah. Well, you know, I was editing, making out, and watching Will Be Blood. Yeah, yeah. A very multi-talented person. Yeah. And plus, yeah. he was drinking a milkshake. So, <laughs> yes. Um, and when we've looked a lot in Raising Arizona, Hustler Proxy, mm -hmm. there has been this good versus evil. Thing. Right. And there's definitely an evil in this film. Right. Is there a good, and I guess it would probably be the sheriff. Yeah, Bell's character is, is the, the sheriff, and Llewellyn and the, is kind of this mid-ground gray and, character. And so then what What takeaway do we take from that battle between good and evil if they both just good literally gives up and... Well, and bad but see, is good is not good there. is not after evil. I mean, in this movie, good is not after evil. Good is trying to save the soul of the average man played by Llewellyn. And unfortunately, good didn't get there in time and evil killed him first. So and this yeah. isn't a battle between good and evil. This is I mean, if you want to take it into that bigger spiritual level, mm -hmm. this is the battle over someone's soul. And unfortunately, this time evil won and good did not. I think I think basically what the movie is saying, you know, through the title and through the the events and and through the sheriff is that um, you can't have a battle against good and evil anymore. Mm -hmm. It's good has become irrelevant. It's basically all about greed, which makes a lot of sense since this movie is basically a gateway into the eighties, right? Yeah. Um, this idea that. Um, there are these gray areas and somebody who holds that black and white good and evil mentality is too old for this world. doesn't work anymore. This is not there. This is no country for old men. Mm -hmm. 
I do like it, it, it's such an interesting thing looking at this one last because we have had very strong similar themes from these Coen Brothers films up to this point, and they're still there but in different ways because there's one part of this film where I feel like it isn't ended completely like the other ones is mm-hmm. or are is that um, while we do have the sheriff recounting these dreams it's not a voiceover like we have in these other right. films where there right. is this sense of this person is talking over something and finishing the film for us or like making some big revelation about this and maybe he is in this film but the fact that we have to look at him while it doesn't feel like it's capping off the film in the way we've seen his other ones do so it does feel very abrupt in it being done while he's like essentially looking at the camera well unless, right unless it's, and the other films are yeah. you know we're looking at some right. other thing Somebody's while the voice is talking head, some other thing yeah. sure but again if if we're trying to get into this point that this prophetic dream that he had at some point scared him enough that where he didn't want to really do his job, that he was just looking for his way out. That's kind of a better way to end it where you're seeing, Oh, here's this scared little man sitting, drinking coffee with his wife instead of this big, tall Western hero that we expect our cowboys mm-hmm. to be. That actually is a better way to end the movie. If he's really kind of timid and, and not really wanting to get involved in this story. It's it's really too bad that uh, this movie kind of leads into the 80s because if it had led into the 90s, then they could have played that Where Have All the Cowboys Gone song. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, in the 80s that they're more interested in running off with the money and not the cocaine. Right. Well, well cocaine does go missing. Someone takes it. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, the cartel drives they come up back and, and, and comes back and, and takes it. Yeah. But it's just interesting that if this had been done by someone else in a modern time, it would have been, Hey man, we've got 200 pounds of uh, brown sugar from Mexico and we're going to be billionaires. Now we just need to figure out how to sell it before the cartel catches up to us and murders us. And mm-hmm. this, that would, that would be your movie for today. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely another harder way, if, mm-hmm. especially you got Oh yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. If this were, if this were today's yeah. movie, that's what they would focus on is somebody taking the drugs and not the money. Mm hmm. Do you empathize with anyone in this movie? Oh boy. Um if I was going to empathize with anyone, it would definitely have to be Llewellyn's wife because she doesn't really have a say in anything. She yeah, seems she's like she just kind of still want to go along and just kind of have their life together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from Llewellyn, not just backing away from uh, a drug uh, deal gone wrong, shootout, and just going home and maybe tracking down his antelope instead of getting involved with this, he inadvertently led to her death. Yeah. And she, I mean, she seems like a fine person that just gets caught <laughs> up in this. Everyone else yeah. really made very clear decisions to be a part of everything that right. happens. Right, right. Yeah. Rodrigo, do you empathize with anyone? Um, not really. Again, other than, uh, the, the wife who's like, uh, you know, she's kind of this, uh, I mean, I really felt that she was a character to kind of humanize this like otherwise cardboard cutout that is Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, 
he's not great. He's not a terribly moral person. You know, the camera's on him so much that I, I think there's this basic thing where, like, the person you follow the most kind of becomes your de facto point of view character. Mm-hmm. But not really. Like I said, I, I mean, I was always kind of, like, mildly bored by the movie except the, yeah. for the, like, really suspenseful times because I kind of didn't care what happened to Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. I was like, who is this person? And then, like, uh, you know two-thirds of the way into the movie we finally get that he's a welder and that's all we get from him it's mm-hmm. like he's a welder and he was in vietnam, vietnam yeah. but then again so the the other character so it doesn't even set him apart that he's a, a former soldier because there's like a couple other uh vietnam veterans that yeah, we meet. well most of the people there i mean most of the people that would have been the Josh Brolin character's age would have been in Vietnam. I mean, Woody Harrelson's right, character right. was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, you know, uh, except for age, um, Brolin's or um, the sheriff's would have been in Vietnam. Uh, right. But he was out of his age. But most of those people would have been coming back from or being uh, finished with the military at that point. Right. So you don't you don't get much from him. He's uh, presumably the character that we spend the most that, that has the most screen time. And yet we never really find out anything about him. He's just kind of this vehicle mm-hmm. for the suspense of the movie. Um, I don't know. I just had a I, maybe a lot of other people, maybe, you know, maybe other people envisioned themselves as partially some sort of badass cowboy. And there was some hook in this character that just was not hooking on to me at all. Um, but I just like I was like, nope. And, you know, obviously I can't tell you uh, that I empathize with Sugar's character because then you probably have me committed. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, looking back on all of these Coen Brothers films, now we're going to intermingle comedies and suspense and violence. Uh, If you had to make a list of what, at least what we've watched, Mm -hmm. where would you place No Country for Old Men? Of the ones that we've watched and reviewed, this one would be at the bottom for me. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a fine movie, but compared to the other ones, I think that I think the others are far superior than than this. Even Hudsucker Proxy. Really? Yeah, I just enjoy that movie better than than this one. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Where do you is it kind of the same thing with you, Rodrigo? You don't feel like you yeah. had a good experience with this one? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like there's nothing really wrong with it. No, it's a Other good than movie. Somewhere along, yeah, somewhere along the, it's like formally is just such a good movie. Um, plot wise, it lost me, mm-hmm. um, and the all the other stuff couldn't make up for it. I would put it at the bottom of the list of of the stuff that we've seen. Um, with you know, still Oh Brother uh, at the top of it. Although I guess that's probably not part of these five movies, is it? Uh, we we're just talking about all yeah. of the, all of the Coen Brother movies we've watched in in this oh, okay. uh, in this podcast. Mm, so, yes. I'd probably put Fargo. I'd probably put Fargo. Oh, in the podcast at all? Uh, no. Yeah. Okay. So we've we've watched we've reviewed Oh Brother Where Are There on the show. So right. no, we if haven't. We're, yep. So we definitely. Haven't? I'm pretty no, sure we, we have. No, we haven't. I'm pretty sure we have. No, we haven't. I'm almost no. I have. I guarantee we haven't. Okay. Interesting. I think we've done. The only thing we've done of Cohen's outside of this is Big Lebowski. Okay. Because I don't think I, so. I don't think I've watched Over the Art Thou for like ten years. All right, if you say so. I'm. I just thought that we did. So you may be right. Well, in any I case, hope we didn't. included in matter. your list. Included in your list. I'll uh, 
it doesn't matter. Uh, no Country for Old Men is probably still pretty close to the bottom. No matter that's, what. That's interesting. I think I would put it, especially the stuff we've watched, it would probably be like Big Lebowski, Fargo, then this for me. Mm, okay. And then, you know, like uh, Raising Arizona and Proxy at the bottom. I, I, I enjoyed this film. There are some weird things about it. Um, but I thought this was just an exquisite film that I very much enjoyed. Cool. Sure. Yeah. Cool, cool. Well, we are off next week. Yes, right? we are. I'm going to suggest three movies for August that will really probably shake things up. Okay. First one is what kind of ins- inspired or they, they drew inspiration from for No Country for Old Men. That's okay. The Wild Bunch. It's a Western movie, Sam Peckinpah. All right. Okay? You're not going to like Well, I mean, gonna, <laughs> you're not going to like it because <laughs> you're, you're going to hate it. Okay. But there's a reason why you're going to hate it. Then I would recommend. Like hate it for a good reason or hate it because it sucks? No, hate it for a good reason. Uh, okay. Um, then I would suggest we watch 310 to Yuma. The new one or the old the one? The new one. And uh, wrap that up with, um, in the next month with, um, I'm going to drink your milkshake. Um, there will be there blood. There will be blood. Because oh, okay. and, and the reason I'm saying so, Wild Bunch is you know uh, Cohen's drew inspiration from that movie for this movie, right? And then I'm saying Three Ten to Yuma and um, There Will Be Blood because those are the other two movies that No Country for Old Men were up against in 2008 in the 2008 Oscars. There was like three westerns in that year. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, oh, yeah, it gets into that. Mm-hmm. You know, you get into these cyclical things. So yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's that's just a suggestion. I don't know if you guys want to do that. But it might be interesting then to just kind of see what was going on at the same time that No Country for Old Men was going on. Mm-hmm. And then also here's the Actually, wildly was this violent 2007? Western. 2007, yeah. Yeah, so in 2007, also saw the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Oh, right. That's right. I haven't heard a lot about that movie. That one ends kind of like I this liked one. It. It's, it's interesting and it's good, but it's really, really long. That's the biggest complaint is it's long and drawn out. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Did you think this movie felt long? It did. Because yeah. up to the point where right before Josh Brolin's character was about to die, I was like, eh, do I want to just stop here and finish watching Later. this another time? <laughs> because I, I, it was getting long for me. Yeah. And when I... And I, I got st- to... Go ahead. I got to the end. Oh, sorry. I got to the end and I'm like, oh, now the sheriff retires. Like, oh my God, how long is this movie? Can <laughs> I actually thing? see him he die? He gets the call that the lady died. And then he's like, well, I guess I got to go catch this guy for another 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, and the movie was over. And I was like, well, this was a weird ending, but also thank God. Mm-hmm. It definitely felt long. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility for our guys. We'll talk. We have a whole week to discuss it, or like two weeks. It's crazy. Um, so I've really enjoyed going to the movies with everyone. It was, it was kind of this throwback to what Zach on film started as. And mm-hmm. we're like, man, we can go to the theater, but why don't we watch a bunch of, oh, we do movies? need to do suicide squad though. Oh yeah. So we'll do that on that week that we come back, come back. Yeah. And then we'll go back into those names movies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That sounds like a game plan. We'll etch it out. And you guys will just follow along with us. So thanks for joining me this episode, everyone. Uh, head over to Majorspoilers.com after you finish this podcast and find this podcast posting page and give your thoughts about No Country for Old Men, how you think it stacks up with the rest of the Coen Brothers films, uh, especially if you've read the book that this movie is based on and tell us if it really is as accurate of a depiction of the book as Stephen has read it is. While you're there, 
Look at all the great articles and reviews and other podcasts coming from Major Spoilers every day of the year. There's so much great content for you to enjoy while you wait for the next episode of Zach on Film to come out. And while you're waiting, click on that Amazon.com link at that homepage. It's going to take you right to Amazon where you can do all of your back-to-school shopping. Unfortunately, it's that time of the year again. Oh, Oh, no. But you can do all of that shopping at Amazon, like all the great Amazon low prices. But when you use that link, a little bit of that money won't go to Amazon, but it will come to major spoilers. So great podcasts like this can keep coming out every week. So good. Uh, it's very easy for you to do, and we all appreciate it when you do that. Uh, so we're off next week, but the week after that, we'll be back with Suicide Squad on Zach on Film. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 